Funkateers, Bootsy here to bring the Truth and Rhythm family's attention to Funk Not Fight. Yeah, this is a call to action. We spread hope, not hate, uh, to gain satisfaction throughout our communities via the music uplifting unity. Uh, Peppermint Patty, tell us a little more. Thinker is our partner. Thinker music, that is. So please check the link that's scrolling across the bottom, click it, and submit your music. Let's all funk, funk not fight. fight. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by funkinstuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg.funkandstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to Truth and Rhythm Grammy award-winning jazz, saxophone, flute, and bass player, as well as composer and producer Gerald Albright, who since the late 1980s has released some 20 albums. Six of those hit number one on the Contemporary Jazz Albums chart. And beginning in the late 1970s as a sessions player, he also contributed to hundreds of works by dozens of top-name talents. Those include Patrice Russian, Tina Marie, Rick James, Daz Band, Maurice White and Earth, Wind & Fire, Anita Baker, Howard Hewitt, Whitney Houston, Barry White, Gladys Knight, Tony, 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 
Nina Simone, Smokey Robinson, Jeffrey Osborne, Babyface, and many others. He performed at Bill Clinton's inauguration and in 2021 received the Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award from Joe Biden. He continues to perform, and his most recent projects are a pair of EPs titled G-Stream. Gerald, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for the invite. It's good to be here. All right. Um, where are you today? I'm at home, actually, uh, which is unique this time of year. Usually during the holiday season, I'm on a tour and going all over the place, but uh, I decided to take some time off uh, till the end of the year and exhale a bit as this this year has been quite uh, grueling in terms of uh, touring and uh, your your body tells you when it's time to take a break and I I listened so uh, it's it's nice to be kind of cruising during the holidays well you certainly look well and healthy so that's wonderful to see <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah and you know I just have one of your uh, cohorts uh, cohorts on uh, last week uh, Chucky Booker was a guest oh that's my dear friend man we have some history uh chucky is one of the finest producers and songwriters and instrumentalists uh that i've met in my musical career uh and he was part of my band many many years ago uh prior to him being a recording artist in his own right so uh we got a lot of history i love chucky very very much yeah i really enjoyed him and uh not just great music but seems like a great guy he really is yes yeah and uh, it's funny, Gerald, because I had on uh, earlier this year, Styx Hooper, the last uh, Surviving Crusaders member, who's, you know, another hero of mine. Absolutely. And uh, it came up about Wilton Felder. And, you know, is there another uh, guy who plays bass and sax? And Styx couldn't think of it. And I didn't come up with it either in that interview, unfortunately. But afterwards, so many viewers like chimed in with Gerald Albright, Gerald Albright. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um I love bass. I love saxophone. Actually, saxophone came to me a lot earlier than the bass guitar. I started uh, fiddling with the bass uh, during my college years after seeing uh, a wonderful concert by Lewis Johnson and the Brothers Johnson back in the day. And um, I was sitting front row center at the Orange Show in San Bernardino, California. I was attending college at the time at the University of Redlands, which was right up the road from San Bernardino. And all of a sudden, Lewis Johnson comes out and does this incredible bass solo, and my mouth dropped. And I said, I got to learn this instrument. And I went from that to borrowing a bass from one of my uh, college friends. And I sat in my dormitory room uh, uh, for many, many days trying to practice being self-taught. And, and it's, it's long story short and, and fast forward. Uh, it's a, a huge arsenal of, of what I uh, do as an instrumentalist. So I love the bass guitar. I really do. And was Wilton Felder an influence at all, or were you aware of? of Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, both on the sax and the bass. Uh, we were dear friends. I miss him uh, dearly. But what a sound, man. And and all of the, the tracks that he recorded. A lot of people don't know that he recorded recorded a plethora of tracks from Motown, a lot of hit records for the Jacksons and a lot of other Motown artists and um, did a lot of session work on the bass as well as the saxophone. So uh, he's definitely a mentor of mine. And and um, for him to be a mentor and a friend at the same time, it was a win-win for me. So I'm, I'm blessed to have known him on those levels. And did you ever get to meet or spend much time with Lewis Johnson? Yes, I knew Lewis very well. Um, I didn't see him as much as I did uh, Wilton, but 
Um, I used to see him usually at the Musicians Union when I lived in Los Angeles. You know, Lewis did so many recording sessions. He was always picking up his 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 checks from those recording sessions from the Musicians Union. And uh, there will always be a big stack of checks. And he used to always brag about, yeah, man, I'm getting paid. I'm getting paid. But he was because he was the premier bass player at that time. Everybody was using him. Um, but, yeah, I got a chance to know him. And I, I do know George, his brother, very well. And, um, of course, he was a direct and initial influence on my bass playing, for sure. I had uh, Kevin Spencer from Dynasty on a while back, and he talked about uh, meeting Lewis uh, and, and doing martial arts with him when he was young and getting some, you know, uh, bass licks from him at the time. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. Even that, that's a great bit of trivia. I didn't know that Lewis was into martial arts. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. So. so, Gerald, when did it click for you that, yeah, uh, music is going to be my career? Well, um, early on, I have to go back to when I first started. I mean, uh, when I started to get a handle on the saxophone, all I could do was dream about having my own band and playing in front of multiple multitudes of people. And, and so uh, that came to fruition. Um, but if I had to pinpoint a, a point in my lifetime where there was a, a pivotal confirmation, I would, I would probably say uh, as a senior in high school going into college, that's when I determined that the only thing outside of family and other relationships that really made me feel complete uh, music was that that vocation that I knew that made uh, uh, a fulfilling element in in my life. And um, uh, I think I think, yeah, the beginning of college, late high school was when everything turned around for me. And I started putting those energies into uh, making my career what it is today. And, you know, we're still working at it. It never stops. <laughs> And uh, early on, were you, uh, you know, captivated by jazz or were you also into funk or what was really, you know, doing it for you? Well, mainly jazz. Uh, I was very fortunate to attend Elaine Leroy Locke High School, which uh, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, a lot of people call it Watts. Um, and I was very fortunate to be part of a music program at this high school, which was nationally known. And we won a lot of awards, both. Uh, in the categories of jazz and marching band. And um, a lot of great musicians came out of that high school, like Patrice Russian and uh, Leon Ndugu Chancellor. Uh, the, the Earth, Wind & Fire horn section that you hear today, uh, one of my best friends, Gary Bias, another saxophonist, came from Locke High School. And so this was a breeding ground for, for great musicians to spin off. And... Um, uh, I was very, very lucky. You know, when you're in the midst of it, you don't really know how lucky you are. But when, when you, you know, advance in your career and then you kind of look back on the different steps that led up to where you are today, you go, man, that was a heck of a music department we were part of, um, spearheaded by the great uh, Frank Harris and Don Dustin. They were, as teachers go, the best you could get. Uh, very, very supportive. Not only did they work uh, during school hours, but uh, the marching band, for example, would practice up until eight or nine o'clock at night on the football field. And then we had to do homework 
for the day, you know. So it was it was um it was boot camp. It really was boot camp for musicians. And uh I'm glad I went through that because that gave me the foundation to uh to go through the career in a stable fashion. And uh now as a recording artist, I'm celebrating over 35 years and 23 records. So it, it was good stuff back in the day. Yeah. And what uh, inspired you or pushed you to kind of expand out to, you know, so many different woodwind instruments and just, you know, have such a, a wide repertoire of, of musical options? Well, again, that that stemmed from my experience in in, uh, in high school in the same music department. Um, my teachers schooled us on, OK, you know, you sound good on saxophone, but don't forget when you're doing recording sessions, especially in the Los Angeles area, where it was kind of the mecca for uh records and movies and things like that you have to be prepared for whatever you get called for so you as a woodman player you got to learn clarinet you got to learn flute you know and and all the other woodwinds and you just have to be ready for the game so this is what they instilled in us uh way back then and so that's when we started you know saving our pennies to buy extra instruments to to you know create our own personal arsenal of of uh woodwind family and speaking of family, Gerald, did you come from a musical family? You know, was that part of your heritage? Well, uh, indirectly. Uh, my mom my mom uh, sung the choir. Uh, my brother uh, started on piano and went to trombone and was, was good at both. But he didn't pursue it as a career. It was something that he uh, pretty much dealt with through high school. And then when he went off to college, he went into... Uh, chemistry and a lot of cerebral stuff, uh, as they say. Um, so I'm really the only one that pursued a music career, a bona fide music career. However, uh, my legacy continues through my daughter, who is a dynamic vocalist, and she has her own independent record label. Her name is Selena Albright, and she's done very well uh, as a songwriter, producer, and uh, a record label owner. And I'm very, very proud of her. And uh, so, you know, my legacy continues through her, actually. So it's all fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what year did you graduate high school? I graduated high school in 1975. Okay. Yes, I'm still a young man. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, it seems like a blur. But uh, yeah, I graduated in 1975. And, you know, we're still at it, man. We still are passionate about uh, the music and what we do within that wonderful business of music i was just asking you that gerald because i'm class of 79 from santa monica high school not too far away oh nice nice yeah awesome yeah that's great um what would you say was your first big break in the studio my first big break in the studio i would have to say and this is prior to me even being a recording artist uh i would say in the early 80s, I got a chance to play the saxophone solo on Patrice Russian's Forget-Me-Nots, which to this day is a single that will never die. It's, it's in movies, it's in commercials. Uh, people are doing dance routines on social media on, on this particular song. Um, uh, it's just one of those songs that has stood the test of time. And, and a lot of people talk about the... Uh, the, the tenor sax solo that I did on that particular record. And that, uh, thanks to Patrice, that gave me a nice springboard to do more recording sessions because every time I would 
uh, be hired by somebody, a lot of the producers will say, yeah, man, give me give me that sound that you gave Patrice on on that Forgive Me Nots tune, you know. Uh, so it, it was it was a nice thing to kind of steamrolled into some consistent uh, recording session work for me. So being a jazz guy, how'd you feel about getting over in a more R&B context? Well, I think it's all relative because I started off listening to James Brown at an early age. My older brother had every James Brown record in the household. And so I started playing R&B saxophone. That's what I call it. And it wasn't until uh, high school and college that I was introduced to like the Grover Washingtons of the world and the Ronnie Laws and and in a traditional sense, the uh, Cannonball Adderley's of the world and the Charlie Parker's and the John Coltrane's. And so if I had to book in my sound, um, it would be, you know, Maceo Parker from the James Brown Band and then Cannonball Adderley uh, uh, on the traditional side of things. And I, my, my sound, uh, coupled with some el elements that I put into the pot of gumbo, as they say, uh, that's the way I describe my sound. Yeah, I mean, you named just some of my very favorites. Maceo, my son is actually um, indirectly, his middle name is named after Maceo. Uh, Parker is his middle name. Oh, that's and, awesome. Uh, uh, and Ronnie uh, Laws, who've been on, who's been on the show, and um, uh, Grover, um, you know, rest in peace. Just yes. favorites of mine. Absolutely. Um, so those uh, studio sessions, before you start doing your own solo thing, um, <clears throat> you know, Tina Marie and Patrice, as you mentioned, and uh, you got in there with Maurice White. And uh, what was it like working with with Maurice? Um, it's like working with Michael Jordan. He was the Michael Jordan of producers um, at that time. And as it continued on in his musical career, he was one of the finer producers that we've ever had. And to sit side by side with him in the studio and just see how he works his magic on a daily basis. Uh, that's the kind of schooling that you can't pay for. Uh, he just had that it factor that brought great musicians together. And what he got out of the musicians was uh, something on a max level that, uh, I mean, his persona even inspired you to play better. Same thing uh, when I did recordings with Quincy Jones. It's just something about their aura that makes you want to do your best for his recording. And uh, he makes you feel, both of them make you feel so comfortable in the studio that you then have that relaxed overtone to really give your best from whatever uh, creatively is coming from your soul. And um, so I, I really uh, cherish those days with Maurice White and, and Quincy Jones, they're great. What did you learn from uh, both of them that you kind of took into your own productions when you do your own records? Maurice White liked everything big. Even his ballads had weight, had girth to it uh, with the big horns and, you know, just the full on full throttle rhythm section. That's the way I hear music. I, I don't hear music in, um, in a very safe form. Um, Maurice was, was unsafe. He would try things like, uh, on certain recordings, you can hear him speeding up the tape uh, so that the horn lines were like twice the speed, and they, but they still had the clarity uh, and uh, the preciseness. Uh, you never heard that on record before. I mean, he would try things, man, that uh, deemed that he was always in an experimental platform to, to just stretch the music to uh, it, the nth degree. Quincy Jones, same thing. 
uh, Quincy, uh, there was no one that would not show up at a Quincy Jones session. He had everybody's number. Uh, if he needed a particular thing, um, he could call on somebody and they would be at the studio in an instant because he's Quincy. He's the godfather. Uh, and from that Rolodex uh, came some of the greatest music that we've ever heard uh, through the years. And, and not just, you know, modern day. We're talking back in the day, Frank Sinatra, uh, all of the, the old icons back in the day. Uh, he had a big part in those horn arrangements that you hear on the Frank Sinatra recordings and other recordings there of that era. So, yeah, uh, two of the greatest. I'm glad I had a chance to work with them extensively. Just uh, recently doing sort of a deep dive on on Q because uh, Larry Williams was on, and uh, he worked wow. a lot, as you probably know, with Quincy. Absolutely, yes, I yeah. love Larry's playing; he's phenomenal. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then uh, Rodney Franklin, you forged a, a good bond with with him, and and he helped kind of uh, catapult your solo career, right? Because I know he was involved on the first record. So, what was that relationship, and how did you get your solo career going? Well, for a long time, I mean, we're still dear friends to this day. We we keep in touch. Um, Rodney, back in the day, I used to be a part of his band, actually, uh, in some cases as a bassist and in other cases as a saxophonist. Um, a, a great musical times. Rodney uh, was one of the finer and still is one of the finer pianists uh, of our time. Um, and I brought him in on the first record uh, to do some recording for me. Um, and in fact, he's on uh, my very first single, So Amazing, of 1987. And so in terms of his persona and his musicality, he's really lent something uh, great in terms of uh, helping to launch my uh, career, uh, you know, as a feature recording artist in his own right, being a part of that particular record. And uh, all the times that I've had with him on the road, you know, we've got a lot of stories. Um, he, he's just a phenomenal player, man. And, uh, uh, I'm hoping that we can couple together once again and, and do some other great music together. That would be great. Was it always your ambition and thought that you would be a solo act? Yes. Um, I mean, I'm a team player. I love playing and collaborating with, um, everyone I can get my hands on, but my dream was to be um a solo saxophonist and and hopefully make a statement that was unique um to the music business and something that could develop a legacy not only for my career but uh for my family and and uh, subsequently the generations that that come after that um so yeah i i definitely wanted to be a solo artist and that stemmed from again going back to listening to the the maceo parkers of the world you know it's just um, that was it for me, man. And whenever I, I get with Maceo and we're sharing the stage together, I tell him that story of uh, how deeply he's influenced my career. And he always says, oh, Gerald, man, get out of my face, man. Get out of my... I'm like, Maceo, you don't understand, man. You uh, are a bookend, literally, of my musical career. And, and I got to tell you, and I think I'm thankful for it. So uh, he's a dear friend and we kid around a lot. Yeah, he's all good. That's another guy who comes from a background of real military precision, you know, and what he does. Oh, absolutely. I always describe him as a drummer playing saxophone because the feel that he had with those melodies, 
the percussive nature of, of the way he played and then the clarity of his alto. It felt like a, a, a marching band drummer, man. It just felt like that the pulse and the sound was not to be denied. A Maceo is Maceo and there's nobody like him. Mm -mm, for sure. What's your um, thought process and mindset like when you go into the studio on, you know, the saxophone versus on the bass? Well, uh, these days, you know, you kind of learn after 23 projects, you kind of learn how you like to work in the studio. And uh, early on, the earlier albums, I used to have a, a definitive plan. Okay, we're going to do this this way and that, that way. Now, uh, having the arsenal of, um, you know, the bass, all the saxophones, I got a bass clarinet here, bass flute, alto flute. Uh, C flute. I'm in my studio now. Um, now I have a lot of things to draw from. So instead of having that blueprint when I walk in, when I when I flip the switch in my studio, I, I just let the creativity flow. And I might start with a melody, or I might start with a drum beat, or I might start with a bass lick. I just kind of leave it open. And as I get the main idea of the tune, then I start to shape around that main idea and make the tune uh, what it needs to be. So I, I'm creating more in a in the free zone now. I, I don't really calculate as much on my my recordings. Um, and then honestly, I at a certain point when I make what I call the demo of whatever the idea is, um, I leave a lot open for the musicians who I want to employ on that particular tune. So you know, uh, as a musician, you know that when you when you reach a certain point of the production or a certain point of the tune, you start hearing certain other musicians on it. Okay, yeah, I can use this guy on keyboards. I can use this guy on percussion and drums to really make it what it needs to be. And so I just, I, I leave that that space in order to do that, you know? Uh, and it's a fun process. I love starting uh, from an embryonic idea musically and then letting that thing just grow and flourish into something that's just huge and and uh, and makes some kind of musical message that my listeners will appreciate. I got to say, Gerald, I mean, your career in the studio with your albums has been remarkably consistent, you know, and not only in, you know, the number of projects, but also just the level of quality. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know? And it's kind of amazing, really, because it's been, what, 35 years, right, since the first yeah. one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can jump from one to another and that level of, you know, musicianship and the quality of the, of the project is still evident, you know, wherever you go. Well, I appreciate that thought. Um, uh, I, I think it really comes from just being honest with the music and not forcing it, uh, just being genuine with it and allowing those other energies to come into that production that will really make it what it needs to be. Uh, and not be so limited in your production. You know, um, uh, for a long time, uh, early on, I used to think about, well, what radio will accept, you know, and, and, and that's definitely to be considered uh, because, you know, we're in the business of selling records. But at the same time, as I grew through my, uh, my musical upbringing, I, I started to just uh, not play it so safe and just let the music flow the way it needs to to fly and just just put it out there 
and let the people decide what journey it takes. You know, I, I think music deserves that. I don't think it there's there needs to be a governor on music or a ceiling of creativity. You know, if if you know there's something that you put on a production that you know you're taking a risk on, take the risk. You know, and see what comes back. Well, where I really felt you sort of declared your musical independence, if you will, and went off on your own, um, was giving myself to you, that mm -hmm. project, you know, because um, you went in more of a, a straight jazz direction. Yes. And uh, you did pull it back and, you know, continue to mix what you had done with, you know, more of a fresh spin and a little more funk and here and there. Um but I just felt that that was maybe at least uh, sonically a little bit of a turning point for you. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, well, uh, it, it just it was a reflection of my allegiance to traditional jazz. Again, when when you hear a, a Cannonball Adley play his horn, it's hard to deny that um, style of music. Um, and it just excites you. And so you want to be a part of that. And so that was the reason behind my my two traditional jazz records. I put out one in 1991, which was a live album called Live at Birdland West, and then 95 for uh, Giving Myself to You, which was a studio effort. Um, but, you know, it was just a, a time where there had been four or five years between the time that I recorded the first traditional jazz record and, and the Giving Myself to You project. And I just wanted it to be special with the live strings and uh, employing guys like Eddie Harris and, and Bobby Lyle and Stanley Clark and George Duke and all these wonderful friends of mine that um, were very gracious to lend their talent to that project. And uh, I go back and listen to it and I just smile, man, because it takes me back to the, the vividly to being in the studio with all these guys, man. And, and uh, I, I wish that I had video footage of that stuff we didn't think about videos back in those mm -hmm. days man you know um but i just wish that we had some kind of footage that would really document how that particular project had shaped um but i do have the memories and we do have the actual project so i'm very proud of it yeah and you know just uh, continuing on gerald with some of the great talents that you've worked with i mean some of the regulars that have been present throughout a lot of your career uh, we mentioned Chucky, um, but also, uh, you know, Paul Jackson and sort of that, like a little bit of that uh, L.A. based, uh, you know, group of just great musicians, um, um, you know, Harvey. Um, and then later on, uh, Jeff Lorber. Sure. And, uh, you know, what can you tell the people about a few of those cats in terms of what they're like uh, to work with? Well, you know. <laughs> They're just musical family to me. You know, I've known them so long. Um, I am in all of everything that they do, but there's a really deep comfort zone when I call on a Jeff Lorber or a Paul Jackson or Nathan East or somebody, or Harvey, Harvey Mason, uh, because they're just musical buddies of mine, you know? And so we have played in so many different musical situations that when it's time to call on them, to do a recording, it's like, okay, I'm just calling Paul. I'm just calling Harvey. I'm just calling Nate. And what comes out of that is just some premier music, man. You know, when you call these guys, uh, you're going to get the best of the best. Uh, and it, it's like having the best basketball team on the planet. It's like the Golden State Warriors, man. You just, 
You know what I mean? <laughs> I would say the LA Lakers, but they need some shaping. Anyway, that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, you call the A team when it's time to make the A record, you call the A team and to have, uh, to have, you know, the Rolodex that you have of those great West Coast players and East Coast players and everybody in between that you can call upon. Uh, it's just a real blessing, man. And, uh, and to have them call on me to do their projects. I mean, so it's a win-win in both directions. And as a funk guy, Gerald, it was really a kick to see you, uh, you know, get guys like Tony Maiden and, uh, and and uh, Marlon McLean and oh yeah you know some of those guys that uh, are steeped in funk too oh yeah well you know funk I can't deny funk man funk is part of my musical DNA and I started listening to funk you know the Philly international sound the Motown sound of course James Brown uh, uh, Stax records I mean all that stuff man I was as a young kid I was just living and breathing this stuff musically and and so that's what came out of my playing and i feel so comfortable with it you know employing the r&b side of things into the traditional jazz that's just a a great musical marriage for me that i feel comfortable with and we mentioned maceo i don't know if you've had a chance to record with him but i know you did a, a, a tune with uh, fred wesley so that was some special yeah uh maceo and i have never been in the studio together i wish we could man um i know he's I could be wrong, but I think he's allegedly retired now, uh, at least from the road. But I would love to call on Maceo, man, to come in and just, you know, play 18, 816 bars of something for me, man. It would just be unbelievable. Um, I, I hope I still have that chance to do it. I hope he didn't hang up his horn, you know, uh, for forever. I, I'm, I'm sure you know, it's hard for a true musician to just hang up the instrument and not play at all, you know. But uh, I, I do understand his wanting to retire because man he's been on the road all of his life you know and uh uh he's been at it a long long time and and you know when, when the mind and the body says time to take a rest you you listen i get it you know so big props to him for all the music that he's given us and, and his legacy and you mentioned stanley clark but you also worked with george duke yes stanley and george were you know they're kind of like a pair uh, they've done so much together. Um, and George, I call my musical father. A lot of people used to think that we were related because, you know, it, it was something with the cheeks. We have these big round cheeks and it got to be a running joke. And he would call me son. I would call him dad. You know, that whole thing, whenever we would hook up and do recording sessions. And um, George Bohannon, a great trombonist. Uh, who's played in, uh, with everybody, uh, used to kid us about, you know, the the similarities that that we had facially. And uh, so we just ran with it, man. And it was a running joke for many, many years. I, I miss George so much. Uh, Stanley, just one of the greatest guys on the planet. Um, uh, one of the greatest icons on bass and arranging and composing all the movies that he scored. And you know, just unique music, man, that could come from nobody but Stanley Clark. And to be in the studio with him, and uh, at, at one point he was allowed me to to play on his basses. He he likes the Olympic basses, and and uh, you know, just to hold Stanley's bass in my hand, man, it's just like okay, 
I'm with the musical Pope right now, you know, so, <laughs> uh, so, you know, great times, man. Great times. We've made some great music over the years. Yeah. I was just going to ask you if Stanley showed you any licks. Uh, you know, I just learned by, by um, just being a fly on the wall. We never did like a formal music lesson, but I would just watch him, man, like a hawk and just see, uh, his technique and, and how he flowed through the fretboard. And, and just from that alone, man, it was helpful for, for my bass playing for sure. And how do you categorize your uh, catalog of music? You know, cause you know, people put the smooth jazz label on things and, right. you know, I think it uh, really straight jackets, a lot of music that's much more than that. So. A uh, great question. Um, I appreciate that question. Well, See, I've been in the business a long time, and I came around long before smooth jazz was even a term. Uh, so I kind of, uh, how can I say this uh, in a, a positive way? I kind of adapted to that format. Um, when I first started out, uh, they called us an R&B instrumentalist, um, taking R&B covers and putting a sax melody on top of it, like a so amazing and in the mood by the the whispers, things like that, and um, uh, and then later, you know, it was called contemporary jazz. So if I had to put a label on it, which I don't like labels, uh, I I think all of my musical efforts were under the category of contemporary jazz, which is a lot more free uh, and a lot more forgiving in terms of uh, one's approach to production, songwriting, and performance. Absolutely. I had a Tom Scott on a while back and uh, he said that he was introduced one time as like a father of smooth jazz or something like that. And he's like, really? <laughs> he didn't really appreciate that. No, he's, he's got a lot more energy in his playing than smooth jazz, man. Tom, Tom is one of my favorites and I, I just love it. Um, we still keep in touch today. And, uh, you know, when you think about all the, uh, the things that he's done and all the famous solos that he's played on a wide variety of artists, um, yeah, he's one of the guys, man, no doubt. Which uh, one or two projects are you most proud of and why? Well, I have to say the very first project, my solo project, uh, just between us, because that was kind of like the, uh, the launching pad of my recording career back in 1987. And I was new to the industry. I went from doing demo tapes on a four track reel to reel TAC machine to being in a real legit studio with unlimited tracks and and I'm producing my project I'm doing the songwriting and, and and everything so it was a big turn in my musical career so I would have to say that um and I mean there was it, it's hard to list all of them if I you know I would say the next thing that comes to mind is uh, playing at the inauguration of President Bill Clinton um, when I was coupled with, uh, you know, nine other saxophone players that both Tom Scott and Quincy Jones put together. Um, guys like Jerry Mulligan and Grover Washington and Kenny G and Dave Cause and Kirk Whalum. Uh, it was just, you know, uh, just the A-team of saxophonists. And to be part of that and perform for who then was the leader of our free world um, was, was the greatest tribute, the, the, the greatest honor. Um, despite the fact that we played in like 35 degree weather, which was a whole nother thing. We played outdoors 
but it was just an honor to uh, to be a part of that, you know. So those those two events come to mind. But there were several events uh, during the course of my musical upbringing that, uh, you know, playing with Phil Collins for seventy to hundred thousand people uh, over in Europe. It, it just you just can't uh, discount that at all. Um, it was a pleasure playing both in his big band and on his pop tours for many years. Um, so, you know, I, I, I take all of these experiences humbly and they were all great learning experiences for me. Wow. Yeah. Were there uh, a couple of um, sessions that you had for, you know, known artists that just stand out in your mind for whatever reason, because, it could have been that uh, there was a snafu or it could have been that it was just magic or whatever. Uh, I got to go back to Quincy Jones. Um, I've always wanted to work with Quincy and uh, I was a part of uh, one of his projects and played two. Uh, it was actually the back on the block project, uh, which uh, is, I I'm sure he's so very proud of this project because it's still thriving today. A lot of people, a lot of radio personalities still play this music. Um, I played on September and Tomorrow, which uh, were two of the most uh, widely played songs on the project. Um, and just to be uh, in the studio with Quincy. And uh, and at that point in my career as, as a solo artist, I was at kind of a crossroads of, you know, direction wise of which way I should go. And after those recording sessions, you know, Quincy and I would, uh, sit in the uh, the lobby of the studio and he would actually uh, mentor me uh, on certain things and you know and I would be able to ask him questions and I'm like wow I'm sitting on the couch with Quincy Jones you know who who better to get uh, musical advice from uh, so those are very very special moments for me Scott for, for, for sure uh, another project again it goes back to Patrice Russian the how how big that eight sixteen bar solo uh, gave me musical life over the years. Um, working with Whitney Houston uh, on one of her projects in the studio with Narada Michael Walden. Um, this this is good stuff, man. You know, when I think back on it, I'm just so thankful. You know that I was a part of uh, those chapters of other people's careers. Do you remember the feeling or the time and place when you first heard? your sax on the radio? Oh, yeah. Um, being uh, from Los Angeles, and you can relate to this too, um, back in the day, uh, I was coming home from downtown LA. And uh, I was in the fast lane on the Harbor Freeway, which, of course, now is called the 110. The 110. And, yep, the 110 freeway. And I was listening to KGLH 102.3 FM which to this day is owned by the great Stevie Wonder. And my song, So Amazing, came on the radio for the first time. And um, man, I almost had a wreck. I, I was just, <laughs> it was just such, it hit me like a brick. And so what I did, I looked in the rearview mirror and I moved over three or four lanes to the emergency lane. And I just stayed there for the duration of listening to the record. I turned it up real loud. And just sat in the emergency lane, man, and just savored the moment. And uh, man, I, I can't tell you the elation that I had and the sense of gratification and completion that, you know, I had really fulfilled my dream. And my 
song was on the airwaves. It was, it was a big, big moment for me. Absolutely. Wow. I could see if the CHP had pulled over, you know, is everything okay? <laughs> oh yeah. I'm just listening yeah. to my first. <laughs> yeah. Roll down the wood. Listen to my song, man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I wasn't thinking about CHPs or anybody at that point. I was just like, let's turn it up. Let's 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 listen to this song, man, for sure. Hopefully they announced it too when they played it. You know, I hate when you listen and they don't announce anything for like, you know, 10 songs yeah. or something. You know, I honestly can't remember if they back announced it or announced it beforehand. I just remember, you know, just the moment of listening to the actual song. Um but that that song did very well for me. I believe it went number one uh, for for several weeks, and so we got some good mileage out of that particular cover song. Gerald, I like to ask guests to come up with their five desert island albums. You know, if you could only listen to five, you can't be any that you're on. So, other artists, what are the most important five for you? You want five, huh? Okay. Um, kind of blue, Miles Davis. Uh, live in Tokyo, Cannibal Adderley, uh, Faces, Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, Gentle Thoughts, uh, Herbie Hancock. Oh boy, number five, that's the hard one. Um, I would say, uh, whoo, that's hard. I would say only because I'm still trying to master this giant steps <laughs> a john coltrane yeah okay all Those right five. yeah all right all strict jazz except for the faces which uh i think and a lot of people think it's an underrated earth wind and fire album yeah i think it's um i think it's the best record that they ever recorded honestly and i told that to philip bailey uh and he agreed he said out of all of our recordings faces is my favorite recording so he actually validated what what my thoughts were about the project. I just think that in terms of production and choice of songs and execution of instruments, man, I think, and that's not to discount any of the other disc discography from Earth, Wind and Fire. That one just, it was one that I just put on repeat and loop, man. I just could not get a, enough of that project. It's a great record. Yeah, I think maybe some people are overwhelmed by the volume of material that was on it and also that it wasn't just a complete retread of what was I am, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah, it it had its own unique element to it. It stood its own ground. That that faces record, man. I don't I don't know what the mindset was of Earth Wind and Fire and Maurice White back in those days at that time when they were recording faces, but it was it was as though all the stars had aligned, man, perfectly, and it was just time for that record that's what it felt like yeah what a way to start off the new decade right i think yeah, it was okay. 1980 yeah wow amazing um well gerald bring us up to date now uh tell us about the uh you know latest projects and, and what's on the horizon well we're still promoting uh my current project it's called uh g-stream turn it up g-stream 2 turn it up and it's a um it's a three song ep uh I'm, I'm feeling these days that EPs tend to uh, be a little more apropos for the way radio is now. It's, it seems like it's more of a singles market now versus a full album market. So we're pushing singles now. And because of that, I made an EP that's doing very well. Uh, so far, uh, the first two out of the three songs have gone number one on Billboard. And um, we're, we're hoping that the third song goes number one as well. 
Um, uh, but right now, uh, just getting home from the road, um, basically I'm upgrading my studio because I'm getting ready to start new projects. So, um, I have a, a computer here that needs to be updated. And, and, you know, when you update the computer, then you have to update all the software that's supposed to talk to the computer. And it's, it's, it's just a, a, a big effort, but all that to, to say that we're going to be creating some music for 2023. I'm real excited about it. We're going to do some extensive touring in 2023, uh, hopefully not only domestically, but internationally as well. And, um, you know, just working smarter, not harder, you know, as uh, I just turned 65 a few months ago. So uh, the way I approach uh, my efforts now, um, it's more smarter, not harder, you know, and um, but still uh, trying to strive uh, for maximum result, you know, so that's where we're going for this in, you know, in the coming year. Do you feel like at 65 that your stamina, you know, for blowing the horn is, has changed at all? Uh, I think it has. I think I'm stronger than ever, to be honest. Um, I moved to Colorado in 2005, and it was a, musically a rude awakening because the air is thinner here. And when you start practicing your horn, uh, you don't have the wind that you did in California. But what happens is over time, your lungs adapt to that thin air. Now you're able to play in any environment. So uh uh, I feel strong. Um, I feel like I have a whole lot of music to to play, God willing. And um, and I've also perfected my setup on the horn where I don't have to push nearly as much air through the horn, uh, but I can still get the same result of the, of the big sound that I want to get through the, the alto or whatever, whatever I'm playing. So um, less air means less energy, but the sound is still there. So it's a nice, happy medium. And Keep Holding On is uh, nominated for a Grammy, right? Yes. yes. Congratulations on that. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm on it. And it just came out of left field because um, uh, my project wasn't nominated because I didn't have enough songs. It didn't qualify. I think you need five songs or more in order to be uh, in the running. Uh, and I only had three songs on my project. So uh, I, just, I just said, well, okay, I'll just watch the Grammys on TV and see who wins. But then all of a sudden, last early last week, I start my phone started blowing up. Congratulations on the Grammy nom! I'm like, what Grammy nom? You know, and I started doing some research, and it turns out um, uh, a great trombonist, uh, a new guy to the to the music industry, his name is Hank Belisle. Um, I did uh, some feature work on his project and recorded it here in my studio, and it got nominated. So I'm very very happy about that, and this is my ninth ninth nomination very very excited about it that's awesome congratulations and uh, good good luck and uh, uh i like wiggle on there too by the way I know oh, gee, wiggle. oh thank you <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's an interesting story um my grandson my two and a half year old grandson is the main influence behind uh, the inspiration of that song um one day we were at the kitchen nook table uh, early in the morning, it, the rest of the household was asleep and he wanted breakfast. And uh, the, the the culinary uh, expert that I am, I gave him a bowl of Cheerios and a bowl of blueberries and uh, no milk in the Cheerios. He just wanted dry cereal. And I would feed him a Cheerio and I'd feed him a blueberry. And he'd just start to wiggle, you know, and he's smiling at me wiggling. I'm like, that's cute, man. I bet you won't do that again, you know, for me to ca catch him on my cell phone. 
And so I fed him another one, another Cheerio, another blueberry. And he smiled at me and started wiggling. I said, that's my next single. And it went number one on Billboard. And it's called G-Wiggle. And a lot of people think the G is for Gerald, but it's actually for my grandson, Gavin. Uh, because wow. he, was, he was the inspiration behind G-Wiggle. Yeah. How's he react to the tune? Oh, he wiggles. <laughs> yeah, bigger, bigger wiggles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, you know, he loves music, man. And, and and everything is a drum. He's beating on everything. He's two and a half. So everything is a drum or a musical instrument, man. It's funny to watch. That's great. Get inspiration where you can, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no doubt. Wow. Well, you know, I, I told you I had Chucky in here the other day and I asked him, I told him that you were coming in and I said, what's, uh, you know, something I could ask Gerald about. Uh -huh. So he said to ask you about the whistle. Oh yeah. Okay. Now we're, we're talking history. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, when I was on the road with Anita Baker, no, 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 no. This goes even back to Patrice Russian. Um, there's a phenomenal drum in LA. His name is Michael White. For a long time, he played with uh, Maze featuring Frankie Beverly, uh, one of my favorite drummers. And he's from Chicago and he's a comedian as well. He's just one of those funny guys. He was kind of like the Bernie Mac of the music industry, you know, just naturally funny. Um, but anytime he wanted to diss somebody, we'd say diss or, you know, talk funny about somebody, he, he would do this whistle, this, I can't even do it now, but it was this whistle and he got everybody in the band to whistle, you know, it was really influential. And so I brought that to the studio, you know, and I started whistling, you know, depending on whatever we were talking about at the time. And then Chucky started doing it and the whole band started doing it. And so it's this thing that just evolved. <laughs> I can't believe he told you that. But, um, you know, but that's the beauty of, of brotherhood in the music industry, man. You just you never know what stories you're going to de develop on the road and, and what's going to be the next running joke, you know. Uh, but uh, I will tell you, man, I've had some very special times with Chucky Booker and, and he has uh, enhanced my life in a lot of ways, man. He's just a great guy. Uh, his mom even plays dynamic piano. Uh, if you heard her play gospel piano, man, she's she's phenomenal. In fact, she's on, uh, I think, at least one or two of his recordings uh, from back in the day. And um, uh, yeah, but Chucky, man, that's my guy. I hope we get a chance to do some more music together. Absolutely. Yeah. How can people uh, keep up with what's going on with Gerald Albright? Um, very easy. Uh GeraldAlbright.com is my website. Um, all of my music's there. I have a, a, a actually a, a website store where you can purchase bundles of music. Um, it, it has my tour information. It has my social media information. Uh, GeraldAlbright.com. I'm easy to find. And uh, may I just say that uh, to your audience and my audience that I really appreciate all the support throughout all these decades that you guys have given me. Um, I don't take it lightly and, uh, I take it seriously. And I thank you for that. Well, fantastic. And thank you so much for all the great music through the years. Much appreciated on behalf of all the viewers and listeners too. My pleasure. It's my honor. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this episode of truth and rhythm. 
A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkandstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the Media Services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.